I want to begin reading in uh, verse 2 of John chapter 14. Hear the words of, of Jesus. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Pray it again. Father, I am grateful for your word, grateful for the truth that it gives us, grateful for the truth that it is. We are in great need of your Holy Spirit to help us understand it, and I pray that he would come and fill us, that we might be illumined, and that our understanding might be clear. And that our lives might be changed, transformed by the renewing of our minds. So do that now in these few minutes we have together around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Consider with me, just for a moment, a conversation between two gentlemen, Jim and Bill. A couple of college students sharing a dorm room. Jim is a Christian, Bill is not. This conversation is a... Recounted in an article by Harold Netlin and Keith Johnson. Jim and Bill were engaged in a late night conversation about religion in their dorm room. Although he was initially quite interested in Jim's impressive testimony about how his relationship with Christ had changed his life, Bill became increasingly disturbed as the conversation began to focus on verses such as John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jim continued to explain in a gentle but insistent tone that Scripture makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the only Savior for all peoples. Suddenly, Bill cut him off. Come on, Jim. Be reasonable. I'm glad that Christianity works for you, and I do think Jesus said some good things, but how can anyone today believe that there is only one true religion just look at the good, all the good people in other religions. Why do you Christians have to be so narrow-minded and intolerant? Perhaps you've had a conversation like this before, or at least heard of a conversation like this 
before. Maybe you've had the conversation with yourself. As you've encountered the beliefs of other religions, some of which have significant overlap, it seems, at first glance, with Christianity. You begin wondering, what is it, in fact, that is so unique about Jesus and the salvation that he offers me that it must necessarily exclude all other proposals of salvation and access to life with God? And besides the conversations you've had with others or yourself, you live in a culture where religious pluralism has become quite rampant. The prevailing worldview of our culture rejects that there is anything significantly unique, normative, or superior about Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. In fact, rather than having any one particular objective truth answering the basic questions about life and the world and human destiny and so forth, our pluralistic culture tells us there is no one religious perspective or figure that can be normative for all people in all cultures in all times. There's just no possible way, our culture says, that large numbers of morally good, sincere, and intelligent people can be mistaken about their religious beliefs. And in this environment, religion then becomes highly pragmatic and consumeristic. The pluralist doesn't care to evaluate any one religion based on the truthfulness of its claims, but based merely on its usefulness. Our society primarily wants someone to, someone, uh, wants, wants to know this, the answer to this question. How well does this or that religion meet my desires and my felt needs? If someone finds Jesus to meet their psychological and social needs, then Christianity is the right choice for them. But to say that Jesus is any more than that is downright imperialistic, says the pluralist. And sad to say, even some who would still call themselves Christians have decided to adjust their view of Christ to make the message of Christianity more palatable to our pluralistic culture. Entire denominations, which once preached the particularity of Jesus for salvation, have now become more inclusive. There's a sense in which Jesus is unique when he's compared to other religious figures, they say. He's even provided a way of salvation. But when you press them, these same people will no longer say that Jesus is the only way of salvation... And that surely enough truth exists in the other religions to point people in the right direction. By making this clever tweak, some denominations have totally drained faith in Christ of all of its meaning and significance. Because at the very core of faith in Christ is the reality that through Christ and Christ alone is found eternal life. So is the air we breathe, in addition to the various objections we face from others and sometimes even from within ourselves when challenged. More and more we are faced with the question, what is it that makes Jesus that unique? What is it that makes Jesus so superior to all others that he's not just one way of salvation, he's not even the best way of salvation. He is the only way. Of salvation. 
What is it that makes him so superior? If the world is saying something different from its assessment of all the other religions in the world, why should you and I keep holding on to Jesus in particular? Not just for these tough conversations that we might get through an argument, but for our own eternal life. Why him above all others and to the exclusion of all others? Jesus himself gives us the answer to these questions and it comes to us in response to his own disciples' questions. He's in the midst of preparing his disciples uh, for his departure from earth. He will die on the cross, be raised from the dead, and then he will send back into glory with his Father. This is where he's going back, going back to the Father in glory. But his disciples are are a bit confused still about the way Jesus is talking about his departure and his going away. And so they enter this dialogue that gives opportunity for Jesus to teach them even more about himself and his identity and his mission. And at least two big things come up about the uniqueness and superiority and exclusivity of Jesus' person and work. And here they are. First of all, Jesus alone is the saving access point to God the Father. Jesus alone is the saving access point to God the Father. This is, this is one thing that makes him totally unique and necessary for salvation in this text here. Thomas wants to know the way to where Jesus is going. Thomas uh, himself isn't yet clear about where Jesus is going, but Jesus has made it clear that he's returning to the Father in glory. If anybody wants to be with Jesus in the presence of his Father's glory, then this is how they must get there. Verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now what stands behind Jesus' words is that people already stand separated from God. If he's identifying himself as the only way to the Father, the assumption in his words is that people would otherwise have no access to the Father. On our own, we'd remain separated from the Father, denied of any uh, any right of access into his presence. And all of a sudden, immediately, we are thrust into the larger storyline of the Bible, all the way, reaching all the way back to Genesis 3. Such a separation, the Bible tells us there, is because of our sin. We've broken God's standard for humanity. We've ignored His glory in creation. We've taken orders from our flesh and raised our fist at the Almighty God and His perfect rule over His creation. We've essentially committed cosmic treason against our Maker. And because God is sovereign, because He is holy... Because he loves what is right and what is just in this world, we have fallen under his righteous judgment for our rebellion. He has cast us out from his presence. And just like our first parents, we cannot enter the glory of his presence covered in our sin and our guilt. We're in desperate need of access and reconciliation to the Father. Without such access, we will perish under God's wrath. John 3, 16 and 36 tell us. 
The Bible says this is the desperate plight of all people born in Adam. Sin and separation from God affects all people in every culture in all time. Everyone stands separated from God without access to God under the wrath of God. If we could think back to our conversation with between Bill and Jim, there are no morally good people in the world. There are no morally good people regardless of how sincere they are about their religious beliefs. Everybody is guilty and separated from God without a chance to get to Him on their own. Now hear the words of Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Within the Bible's storyline, Jesus is claiming to be the only answer to the universal problem of sin and separation from God. He is claiming to be the sole access point to God for all peoples, in all cultures, at all times. Note how he says it here. He doesn't say, I am showing you the way that you too should go in. That is to say, I'm merely the exemplary way for you to follow into God's presence. He says, I am the way. The way to the Father in glory is bound up with Jesus and his person. Thomas, you will get to the Father by knowing and clinging to me, is what he's telling him. Also see how Jesus doesn't say, I am a way to the Father. That is to say, a way among other possible ways. He very plainly says, I am the way to the Father. Meaning, contrary to popular inclusive opinions, that Jesus can't be merely the best way to the Father among other possibilities of access. He claims to be the only way. And lest that be unclear, he states it in the negative. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the teachings of Jesus elsewhere in John's gospel have given us clues to what Jesus means by being the way. Okay, for example, in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And when you have come to Jesus as the light of the world, you've got two options. Either you blaze your own trail in the world, you stumble in the darkness and perish under God's wrath. That's one way. Or, you can follow the light that Jesus gives. And by following the light that Jesus gives, you will enter the Father's presence. In that sense, Jesus, as the light of the world, is the way to God. Or, take for another example, in chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep, he says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This, uh, this idea, this picture of sheep feeding in a, in a lush pasture was borrowed from the covenant language of the Old Testament when, when Yahweh promised to deliver his people. 
It depicts God's people dwelling in His presence and feasting on the abundant life that God provides. The point is the same. As the door of the sheep, Jesus is the only access point into that pasture. Jesus is, is, is the only way into that abundant life with God. Of course, as the Gospel of John continues, each of these images will find their culmination in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus identifies himself as the way, and by doing so, he's binding up all these other images he's, he's mentioned of himself into the way, and then he actually becomes the way by dying on the cross. He binds up all these truths in himself before dying on the cross, which is just hours away from the point he's talking to the disciples here. And when he dies on the cross... He will not be dying as a mere example of what it means to stand up for a good cause. Which is what so many religions believe Jesus did. Rather, when Jesus dies on the cross, He removes people's sins. He satisfies God's anger against sinners. He suffers for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that He might bring us to God. Every obstacle hindering our access to God, sin, guilt, slavery, wrath from God, enmity with God, separation from God, a lack of righteousness that would give us the ability to stand in God's presence, All of these things that hinder our access to God, every obstacle Jesus removes through the cross for those who trust Him. He opens the way for us to come to God. This is part of what it means for Him also to be the truth and the life. Jesus says He is the truth. That doesn't mean He's just any old truth, like 1 plus 1 equals 2, or the Spurs are 2014 NBA champions. Or the sun outside is really bright. Those things are true, but none of them would save us. None of them, none of them would, would give us a relationship with God. Jesus has something more in mind. Truth, in the Gospel of John, is always associated with the person of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus in His his person is full of truth. Or again, in chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The point isn't that God's truth didn't exist before Jesus is coming, but that we see God's truth now bound up in a person. Not merely a word, but a a word that has become flesh. A person. Jesus. The word made flesh. And then what he claims to be doing throughout the rest of the Gospel of John is revealing the truth about God and the truth about God's salvation. Such that... uh, John even says this, whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
or Jesus himself, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. There is no falsehood in Jesus Christ. And oh, how we need that in this world of darkness and deception. The world needs the truth. Because right now, this world is ruled by a father of lies. The God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. You want to know why there are so many religions that either miss Jesus altogether or skew Jesus? The God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of the unbelieving. That's why. Jesus entered that world of deception as the truth. As the truth. There's no falsehood in him. And all the truth that Jesus speaks, he speaks for our deliverance and our everlasting good. Chapter 8, verse 32 says that Jesus is, that the, that the truth that is found in Jesus is what liberates us from our sins. When we look at him, we see the truth about God and how he's chosen to save us in Christ alone. Jesus personifies the truth of God's saving plan for humanity. Indeed, he is God's saving plan for humanity. He is also the life. Again, he's not talking about vague notions of life. You know, like we'd see in some beer commercial. Such and such is the life, you know. He's not talking about that kind of life. He's talking about the saving life bound up with Him and with knowing God through Him. Life itself is in Jesus. He has authority to give it to whomever He pleases, just like He did when He created the world. And just like he will do at the end of the world when he raises people from their graves. He also has authority to lay down his own life for sinners and then to take his life back up again from the grave. Bringing with him a countless multitude of people who sat dead in their trespasses and their sins but will now rise to life with Jesus. Jesus enters a world that sits in death as the life. Among all other people, Jesus alone is the source of eternal life in a relationship with God. Nobody else can make such a claim to life because nobody else created the world. Nobody else is sustaining the world by the word of his power. And nobody else can raise themselves from the dead in order to give life to the world. Jesus alone does this. Jesus must be the only way to God because only Jesus can give true life with God. So, he comes into a lost, deceived, and dead world as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. What all this means is that all other attempts to access God's presence apart from Jesus 
or to experience some divine reality apart from Jesus are totally in vain. Personal enlightenment, such as in Hinduism and New Age movements. Good works to earn God's favor, such as in Islam and Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. Following the Torah and waiting for a Messiah other than Jesus, such as in Judaism. Appeasing the so-called gods, tribal religions. Living in harmony with the ways of nature, Taoism. Simply applying rational thinking to life's problems, atheism. The noble eightfold path of a right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, Buddhism. The activity of self-realization, Oprah. Just believing that you have what it takes, Osteen. All these are totally futile ways of accessing God the Father because none of them provide what Jesus claims He is the way, the truth, and the life. None of them ultimately embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. They've each dodged Jesus to get what they want and what they have is an idol of their own making and not God the Father. They have an idol and an eternity of separation from the Father if nothing changes in their hearts towards Jesus. Only Jesus can be the way because only Jesus is the answer to the universal problem of sin and falsehood and death. God sent no one else from heaven to die for our sins because no one else is qualified except Jesus. God approves of no one else's words unless they agree with Jesus' words. And God has seen it fitting that we access Him solely through Jesus Christ. It is actually loving for God to limit the way of salvation to Jesus Christ alone. It is loving. Because if you enter into God's holy presence through any doing of your own, you will perish. You will perish. It is loving that He has told us, this is the way. You come another way, you're dying. It is loving. I'll tell you else why it's loving. It's loving that there's even a way for sinners to get into God's presence to begin with. See, the world, when we're in these conversations with with the world, um, the world is... Asking the question, why only one way? Christian? The world ought to be asking, why is there a way at all? We don't deserve it. There's a way because God chose to love us in Christ. That's why there's a way. And God has loved us by telling us what the way is. Church, we have the only message that will save people from hell, that will save people from lostness and deception and death and bring them into the Father's presence because only our message gives them the person of Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. We cannot leave today merely saying... Yeah, that's right. Jesus is the only way. 
See? We must go to our neighbors and the nations and give them Jesus himself. They will not come into the Father's presence without embracing him. And they will not embrace him if they're not hearing about him. We're not universalists by conviction. We do not believe that everybody will eventually be saved. The lake of fire will be populated for eternity by all who do not bow their knee to Jesus. But let's not be universalists by our practice. Keeping quiet about the only escape from hell and the only access point into the presence of the Father. People must have a relationship with Jesus if they are to have saving access to God. So let's tell them about Jesus who cares if you look foolish, if God will, if, if, if your message is going to give them God? We shouldn't feel embarrassed by Jesus' uniqueness when the culture says, Phooey! Heaven isn't embarrassed about Jesus. Heaven is enthralled with Jesus' glory and utterly appalled by the world who rejects Him. So do tell them with great compassion and patience that God has made a way through His Son. Call them. Email them. Draw a picture on a napkin if it helps. Over lunch. Care. God. Sin. There's a wall here. Jesus tears it down. Draw something for them. If it gets the message across, enter their lives. Invest in them and tell them the way. And when the world says you're being narrow-minded... And intolerant, tell them Jesus didn't leave it up for his disciples to decide that. He just gave us the message to deliver. Nobody on an airplane says, It's just so intolerant that the tower won't let pilots land wherever they want to. Nobody says that. Pilots don't have an option. And it's for the good of your life. Same here. We don't have the option to change who Jesus is or what he says. And it's for the good of all people's eternal destiny. We tell people, we tell the world, if you come to Jesus, he will be glad to bring you into the presence of the Father. And doesn't this also mean that we, church, cannot enter the Christian life through Jesus and then pretend to live the Christian life without Jesus? You sang the song earlier. John 14, 6 is for us Christians as much as it is for the rest of the world. Our hope to see the Father's unshielded glory cannot rest in the works that we perform, the rituals that we do, the prayers that we make, the people that we please, the results of our ministry, the fruit of our hands, or the ability to regurgitate truth claims accurately. A personal encounter with Jesus alone, the absolute surrender to His saving work day in and day out remains our only hope of coming into the Father's presence with every obstacle that we've built with our sin torn down by the blood of Christ. So keep making Jesus your trust as well. Jesus alone is the saving access point to God the Father for believers and non-believers. 
There are no other points of access, and that makes Jesus unique and necessary for salvation. Second, Jesus alone made the invisible God visible. Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip doesn't get it. Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus then replies, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is a remarkable claim by Jesus. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We've probably all heard or used the expression, like father, like son. What Jesus, here is, what Jesus says here is similar, but without the limitations of human finitude. Here's what I mean. Jesus isn't saying that he's merely like his father, that he's, he's merely imitating his father, which is normally what we mean with the saying, like father, like son. What he's saying is that he's so united with his father, there is such a constant, intim- intimate intercommunion between them in all he does and says that to see Jesus' person is to see the Father in Jesus perfectly, constantly, and fully. Now, John has already given us um, a very clear statement on, on what is meant here by Jesus' words. Uh, If you go back to John chapter 1, verse 18 with me. You wonder where John gets this. He gets this from Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God. I take that to mean God the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's God's Son, Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Meaning, if you want to know God, Jesus tells the whole story. If you look at Jesus rightly as he is, there's nothing about Jesus that would mar your understanding of who God is. He has made the invisible God known to us, and here's how he does it. I just want you to track with me for just a minute. Look back up at John chapter 1, verse 1, because there we see that, uh, that Jesus is distinct from the Father and also shares the divine essence with the Father. Okay? In the beginning was the Word. And just to be clear, the Word is referring to Jesus because he names him in verse uh, 17. Jesus Christ. So the Word is Jesus here. In the beginning was the Word. So the Word is, eter- is eternal. 
And the Word was with God. So the Word is distinct in person. He is with God. And the Word was God. So He is divine. He's equal to God. So He's eternal. He's distinct from the Father, but equal. So while being distinct from the Father, Jesus shares deity with the Father. This is why we confess as a church that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. This is bound up in our confession of the Trinity. Jesus is one in divinity with God the Father, and he shared this oneness in divinity for all eternity. Okay? The, the Son, sharing divinity with the Father, never had a beginning. If he had a beginning, he would not be God. So there was eternal, constant communion of the divine essence, the beingness of, of God, eternal, constant communion of the divine essence between the Father and the Son for all eternity, right? With no limitations. Both Father and Son being infinite in glory and power and wisdom and love and holiness. Now, take that eternal reality of the Father and Son sharing the divine essence infinitely and combine it with Jesus' words here in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So we got, so because Jesus... As Son, the Word, is one in divinity with His Father. There is a, 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 an intercommunion, a sharing of their divine essence, so that each person, the Father and Son, indwells each other. And they do this mutually. They do this, the Father indwells the Son, and the Son indwells the Father. They do this, uh, this mutual indwelling. They do this willingly. That means they both want to. They, there's no external constraint on them. They love indwelling each other. This mutual indwelling is, is willing. It is also eternal, meaning that the Father indwelling the Son and the Son indwelling the Father never had a beginning. This indwelling is unceasing, meaning it will never end. And simultaneously, this mutual indwelling is simultaneous. That means that the Father's indwelling of the Son never precedes the other or vice versa. Their indwelling each other is simultaneous. If you want the scripture verses, you can look at the manuscript online. Now, with all that in your mind... Consider that the divine Son, who has shared the divine essence with the Father for all eternity, who enjoys this mutual indwelling with his Father for all eternity, that Son took on flesh, took to himself a human nature without any of the other ceasing. Ever.
Now, that doesn't mean the Father became the Son. That would be heresy. Neither the Father nor the Son ever share the other's unique person or role within the Godhead. But it does mean that every single thing about Jesus reveals God to us, reveals the invisible God to us. Jesus is God's self-revelation in human flesh. Meaning, all he is and says and does reveals God to us. All he is and says and does reveals God to us. That's what he's trying to get across to his disciples. Verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's who he is. He is the only revelation of the Father because only he shares such a unity with the Father. Nobody else can make this claim truthfully. No other human being No other angel can make this claim truthfully. Verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. That's what he says. We have who he is, what he says. He doesn't speak on his own authority. He speaks in his role as divine son all the time. When he opens his mouth, God speaks. So who he is, what he says, and now verse 11, what he does. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What works? The works he's been performing throughout this gospel, and which he will do soon on the cross. Jesus' works reveal the Father is in Jesus. Jesus' works testify that God the Father is pleased to share the essence of his divinity with Jesus and nobody else. You see what's uh, packed into the uh, statements in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, when Jesus is baptized and the Father says from heaven, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' person, Jesus' words, and Jesus' works all give a public revelation of God to the world. The unity between the Father and the Son is not something Jesus keeps in the abstract, but something he says is revealed in his person and his words and his works. These apostles witnessed them. That's why John opens the gospel. We have seen his glory. They've seen his glory. So he's not keeping it a secret. He's revealed God's person. He's revealed God in his person and words and works so that we can know God. And we can't see him now ourselves. He is with the Father in glory. But in the meantime, he's given us his word through authorized apostles to bear witness to who he is. So all this makes Jesus really, 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 really different from everybody else in the universe. And every angel or demon or power or authority and any other created being or things 
Nobody, no religious leader, no spiritual guru, no foreign god, no saint, no prophet, no celestial power can claim what Jesus claims here. And nobody can reveal God as Jesus does here because nobody else shares with the Father what Jesus shares here. You won't gain a true knowledge of God unless you know and embrace Jesus as God's self-revelation. That's true for everybody in the world, according to Jesus, even for the Jews. Even for the Jews who share the first two-thirds of our Bible. If a Jew rejects Jesus, that Jew has no true knowledge of God. The test of whether a Jew truly understands God's revelation in the law and the prophets and the writings is whether that Jew embraces Jesus to whom they all point. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father who not only told them that Jesus, his Son, was coming, but who revealed himself perfectly when his Son came. If Jesus really is who he says he is, church, the perfect revelation of the Father in his person, words, and works, then it's at the height of arrogance to ignore him. You really do, as C.S. Lewis put it, have to write Jesus off as a liar or a lunatic, or you must bow at his feet and call him Lord. Our culture will accuse us of arrogance for saying that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and it may very well be the case that some Christians are rather arrogant in their demeanor when they speak about Jesus, and for that we should repent. But it is not arrogant to agree with the God of the universe in what he says about his son. It's not arrogance. It's worship. It's not imperialistic. It's love. So fully does Christ sum up God's revelation that it's offensive to God to do anything less than worship Jesus and spread the news about him. It's also not arrogant because we're not claiming to have discovered the way to God. We're not claiming to have discovered the way to God. We didn't dig up some tablets in the ground. We didn't create anything uh, that, uh, of any of our own making to get this truth. We didn't come up with the way to God. God opened our eyes to the way. He showed us the way when we heard the gospel of His grace and caused us to be born again by His Spirit. What we preach to others is not a religious fabrication of what we think God is like and what we think He may be like and what we think the way to Him is. What we preach to others is an incarnational revelation of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. He came from heaven to earth. He came and sought us. He came from outside us. He knows what this world is about and why it exists. He created it with His Father. He isn't affected by the changing philosophies of the age and all the contradictory man-made attempts to know God. He knows God truly because He has beheld God's glory for all eternity. And He reflects God's glory perfectly as the Divine Son now made flesh. And he came to tell us what he has seen and heard with the Father. 
He sought us out while we sat in darkness. He told us who God is, the Father who so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. He demonstrated even for us while He was on earth what the eternal God is like. Here's what He's like. He rescues rebels. He shines light into darkness. He heals the sick, raises the dead, forgives sins, brings true rest, prepares a place for an eternity of gladness for those who trust in Him. And His judgment is still coming. But before His judgment comes, He has given His Son and the testimony of the gospel that people might escape it and enjoy everlasting life with Him. This is the kind of God He is. He is patient with His creation which has rebelled against Him. Jesus even embodied the Father's truth and love when He took on flesh and then laid down His life for the very people who hated Him. This is why uh, the cross, we've been through this before, is referred to as Jesus' glorification and the Father's glorification. Saw it in chapter uh, 13, verses 31 to 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. The cross is Jesus, can be called, even though it's this brutal death of Roman execution, it can be called His glorification because of what it's revealing about the Father. The Father is holy and the Father is love. He reveals God to us when He suffers for sinners. I don't know about you or where you're at this morning, but I'm compelled to listen to Jesus and follow Him above all others to the ex- and to the exclusion of all others wherever they fail to represent Him accurately. If we get Jesus, according to Jesus, we get God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He is our only saving access to the Father. And He has made the invisible God visible so that all peoples from all cultures of all time might enter God's presence through the way He opened with His life, death, and resurrection if they would believe. Uh, a while back at a conference called uh, Together for the Gospel, Al Mohler, I thought, put it very well when he said that the open door is the only door. And the open door being Christ. He's the only door. He's the exclusive way to the Father. The open door is the only door. And the only door is the open door. Today is the day of salvation. God has made a way through His Son. The door is open for fellowship with Him if you would come and embrace Jesus. So let us trust Him and tell every day the story that He has given us. Shall we pray?